Good morning. Thank you, Ron, for praying for us. Well, I remember uh, my very first day working for the U.S. Navy. It was about, uh, it was 1998. I was 23 years old. I remember going in my very first staff meeting. And I remember wanting to sit as far away from the front as I possibly could. There were about 25, of us engineer, 25 engineers in this, it was a green meeting room. I'll never forget this green meeting room with green chairs. And I remember sitting back and I was just kind of waiting to see uh, what was going to happen. Again, it was my very first day, so I just kind of, you know, you, you don't know anything. So I just kind of wanted to be as invisible as I possibly could. But I'll never forget what happened next. We had a man that worked for us, a guy by the name of Ken. And he was a brilliant engineer. He actually designed uh, the power system on the F-18 aircraft. And he was a soft-spoken guy. Everybody liked Ken. He was always eager to help you. But I'll never forget what happened when somebody handed our supervisor, who was not Ken, it was another guy, uh, he handed him a piece of paper. And he read it. And after he read it, he asked Ken to come up to the front of the room. He then proceeded to berate this man and cuss him up one side and down the other, and then he kicked him out of the meeting. Now, I thought, what in the world have I got myself into here? What kind of leader is this that I'm going to be trying to work with? And, and soon after that, a man who was serving as my mentor at the time said, you know, it's best if you try to avoid him at all costs. As a matter of fact, I would watch even walking down the, ha the, the, the hallway if you think he's going to be there. And I thought, uh, okay, I'll keep that in mind. I learned later that people in our building had refused to take CPR classes because they would feel some kind of moral obligation to help this man if he was dying. <laughs> True story. Now, maybe you've had a boss like that in the past. Or maybe even worse, maybe you've been a boss like that in the past. You know how difficult and challenging it can be when you work with someone who's a leader like that. Not only difficult to be around, but can bring morale down for, for everybody. And I, I came across a group called ATD that does a lot of leadership consulting. And they talk about how devastating the impact can be of bad leadership. They said bad leadership can be felt throughout an entire organization, only not in a good way. The result of bad leadership is low morale, high turnover, and a decreased ability to have any sustainable success. And unfortunately, bad leadership can also show up in churches. And I was reading this past week about a, a leader, uh, a pastor by the name of uh, McDonald, who led the Harvest Churches in, Minnesota, in Chicago, rather. And he was fired earlier this year because of a lot of financial malfeasance and because he was berating the staff. And I hope that you will pray with me that I will never become that kind of a leader. And the topic I want to talk to you about this morning is this subject of how can we be good and godly leaders. And before you think, well, Chad, you know, I'm not a leader, so I, I, I don't know if this term is really going to apply to me. Let me encourage you that whether you're a leader in a boardroom, a classroom, 
a family room because I'm guessing that many of you have a lot of short people running around in your house or grandkids or if you are in school trying to be a Christian in that environment you are a leader there are people who are looking to you there are people looking to see what kind of an example that you are going to set so we're going to talk about this subject this morning we're going to do the scripture reading a little bit differently and uh, this morning instead of me reading the passage to you we're going to have a scripture reader the reason being is this this passage today is particularly dramatic there is murder there is intrigue and there are other things that you almost wouldn't believe are in the scriptures but you're going to see it there today so this morning we're going to have a reader Jennifer Reed is going to come up she's going to read for us today and uh, Jennifer is an actress in her own right she does a lot of productions at the uh, at the Wyo theater and she's a public speaking teacher at Sheridan College so Please, Jennifer, come on up and read for us. And if you would, just stay seated uh, while she's reading. Thank you. Am I up to? Okay. <clears throat> Judges 3, verses 12 through 31. Now, <clears throat> the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, and it was a cubit in length. He bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Ehud made, um, he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that Ehud sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king replied, Keep silence. And all who attended him left. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. 
And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And excrement came out. Then Ehud went into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, the servants came and looked, and behold, the doors were locked. And they said, oh, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he didn't open the doors of the roof chamber. Great. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And behold, their master had fallen dead on the floor. Now, Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. It came about that when he arrived, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite of Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at the time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men. And no one, no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the very hand of Israel. And the land was undisturbed for 80 years. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with only an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer. Not an easy thing to follow, by the way. Uh, this morning, obviously, we're continuing this series on the book of Judges that we're doing. It was a very difficult time in Israel. It was a time when there was no king in the land. As a matter of fact, when we get to Judges chapter 17, you'll see that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges continues to tell the story of what started back in Genesis chapter 12. There God made a covenant with Abraham. And he promised Abraham and his descendants that he would gain the land. The promised land, the land of Canaan, as a matter of fact, the remaining 65 books of the Bible are basically an explanation of how God is fulfilling this covenant that he made to Abraham. So we're continuing on this morning. Last week we saw this man named Othniel. He was a good judge. And there wasn't a whole lot that was said about him. We talked about how whenever we are serving God, we promote God over and above ourselves. This morning, we're going to take a look at a much, much different judge than the one we had last week, an Othniel. 
And we're talking about that subject of leadership. And we'll look at this in three ways. Uh, first, we'll see leadership without integrity. We'll look at what leadership looks like without reliance on God. Then we'll talk about, I think we'll talk about, godly leadership displaying dependence, displaying dependence on God. And then finally, we're going to see how we can lead righteously. We'll look at practical ways that you and I can carry out leadership in whatever venue we may be leading in. And I mentioned several there at the very beginning. How can we practically lead godly and righteously in whatever venue we may be in? So, uh, we're, we're jumping in now uh, to this book, this chapter, this very graphic chapter. And um, there at the beginning, look at what happens when we have leadership without integrity. We're going to see there at the beginning of what we just read uh, in verses 12 and 13. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is going to be a theme that you're going to get tired of hearing because week after week after week, it's going to say the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what happened? The Lord strengthened. He raised up this king Eglon of Moab. Now you may remember Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And Moab uh, has a very interesting beginning. Actually, Moab and, and Ammon were both uh, cities, descendants of a, a relationship that Lot, Lot, the most righteous guy that God could find in all of Sodom, had with two of his daughters. And that started this, these two lines of people, the Moabites and the Ammonites, that this king had gathered together with them. And he was a wicked king that the people of Israel served. So then it says that God hands them over to that man, the enemy. And we see that in Judges 3.15. But God raised up this deliverer, a man by the name of Ahud. It is a strange fact revealed about this guy right here at the very beginning. It says that he's a left-handed man. Now, what makes that even stranger is the word Benjamin. Ben means son of, and Yamini means the right-handed. So he's the left-handed son of the right-handed. Now, um, the left hand has kind of some weird connotations that go along with it in ancient Near Eastern culture. Actually, even today, uh, I have a friend who's Egyptian that was telling me that Whenever you're meeting someone in, in that culture, you typically hold your left hand behind your back. Uh, it's seen as dirty. It's seen as unhygienic. It's typically the hand associated with the hand you'd use after you go to the restroom. So immediately, we've got this kind of weird dynamic that's going on. We've got this left-handed guy. As a matter of fact, the Benjaminites will be later... Uh, called and, and, and highlighted because they use their left hand to fight with as they are in a civil war attacking other Israelites. It actually made them much more effective in battle to use their left hands. But this was something they took upon themselves. And even though this guy Ahud has been raised up by God himself, it appears that he's going to be using underhanded tactics and we see them played out in verses 16 through 23. 
So we've immediately got this clue, something isn't quite right about this guy, this left-handed man, son of the right-handed, named Ahud. And then we start seeing it in verse 16. We see that Ahud made a sword for whom? He made a sword for himself. He makes himself the sword. Notice there's no mention of God. He didn't do it for the Lord. He didn't do it for the tribe that he was from. He didn't do it for the nation of Israel. No. It says that he does it for himself. And it's not just any sword. It's a double-edged sword. It's a particular length to go under his clothes. And now we've got this guy, Eglon. And he is described in a very unflattering kind of way. As a matter of fact, when I think of this guy, Eglon, I can't help but think of a, a couple of other folks. I think of Boss Hogg. Remember Boss Hogg from the Dukes of Hazard, Or even Jabba the Hutt, if you're a Star Wars fan. And his name literally means, it means the fat calf. How would you like if your parents named you that? So, this is Eglon. And he's not portrayed as a favorable king uh, in, in any way. And then we get some additional insights as we skip down to verse 28. And in verse 28, it says, and this is, um, this is Ahud speaking to the people of Israel after he had committed the acts. We'll get to those in a minute. Ahud says to them, speaking to the Israelite warriors, Fall after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. Now this is interesting because Ehud is assuming after his previous success with Eglon that God is blessing everything that he does. That he's going to give them victory over these Moabites. And then on down in verse 30, things get even a little more clear. It says that Moab was subdued under the hand of Israel, not under the hand of God, but the hand of Israel. So, so what do we make of all this? I mean, frankly, when I, I read this story, when I, when I heard it read, it's like, man, this guy, he's kind of like James Bond. You know, he's kind of got this Clint Eastwood kind of air to him. He comes in and said, I got a message for you. Boom! But that really isn't the kind of light he's being portrayed in. It seems that he's being portrayed in a much more negative light. Actually, it seems like he's acting more like a Canaanite at this point than he is acting like an Israelite. There's a noticeable absence of God all throughout this section, and we see a man who's taken matters into his own hand, quite literally. We don't see the voice of God in the passage, and we see a whole lot more about Ahud than we do the Lord. And all of these compromises that he's make, making are pointing towards the self-reliance that he has on his own abilities to get things done. You see, these compromises are dangerous. He's looking more like a Canaanite. And, you know, for you and I walking in a foreign culture, it is very easy for us to give in to the same kind of compromises. And it's so important that as Christians, we are always walking with an awareness of what it is we're doing. We're always asking the question, okay, why 
why am I doing this? Why am I acting this way? Why am I thinking this? Why am I feeling this? Because we're told, as the Scripture says, to walk circumspectly. How am I acting? What am I doing? Am I, without even knowing it, becoming more and more like the culture that's around me? I came across a quote by D.A. Carson, and parts of it were so painful I even struggled with whether or not I should, should share it, but I, I think it's something that we need to hear. And this is what D.A. Carson says about living in the culture that we're in. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Now, I wish I could say I don't find any of myself in the thing that I just read there. The problem is that I do. Oftentimes, I think the age we're living in, we can pat ourselves on the back for something that we're doing, saying, well, I'm not legalistic anymore, therefore I can do this. And maybe you can, but you need to stop and ask, and ask do, I, do I take it too far? Do I do it too much? There could be any number of things. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be fill in the blank. Am I becoming like the culture around me? Am I compromising in ways that God would have me not? And when we compromise, it doesn't affect just us. How much more does it affect those people who are looking to us, those people whom we're leading in any number of venues that we could be leading in? The ends do not justify the means. So we have to be aware of what we're doing. We have to be aware we're compromising, becoming like the culture. So leadership without integrity goes badly. It goes badly. But secondly, leadership, godly leadership displays dependence. Godly leadership displays dependence. We've got this further evidence of the independence of Ehud from God in verse 19. We've got this scene that develops in Eglon's chambers. And in Judges 3.19, I'm having a lot of trouble with the clicker this morning. Talking about Ehud, it says, But he himself turned back at the idols and near Gilgal and said, And listen to what he's saying. He says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king was intrigued by this, and he commanded silence among the people that were around him. At which time, after which time they left. And then Ahud says it again. He goes as far as to say, I have a secret message for you from God. And the king's intrigued by this. So he wants to get up out of his chair. He wants to lean in close. He's got some sense of this Hebrew God. And obviously he believes what it is Ahud is telling him. Only see, it's not going to be the message that Eglon thinks. You know, anytime someone's introduced the way that Ehud was, there's sort of this underhandedness about him. There's this tactfulness about him that's, that's not good. 
In the same way, he's got a double-edged sword. He's using double speak. And he's hiding the message. He's hiding the sword in the, in the double entendre he's using with this message. He's hiding it doubly again in his message and hiding it under his, his tunic. All this duplicity, all this, du- all this, this, this hidden deceit. And then he takes the sword and he plunges it so deeply into, a, in, into Eglon. And you heard what, you heard what Jennifer said, that, that the fat of the man actually engulfed the handle. And it seals up the wound and the, no, no blood comes out. The only thing that comes out is feces. No blood, just dung, as some versions say. And if you're not grossed out by that, well, then you're not paying attention. It's pretty nasty. And there's a Hebrew wordplay that's going on here that gets lost in translation because, again, this guy, Ahud, is going to be cast in a negative light. So let me indulge you with a little Hebrew rhyming that goes on here uh, for just a moment because we see it come up. This first phrase, haparsh donah vayetze, and that's a Hebrew phrase, and it means through the opening, the dung went out. But then there's a second Hebrew phrase, Hamas drona ehud vayetze, and notice it rhymes, dona drona. And it means through the vestibule, ehud went out. Now, what's the author trying to tell us here? He said, ehud, that's a pretty poopy thing to do that you just did. So he's being cast in this negative light, through this, this Hebrew wordplay that's happening. So there's lies, there's deception. Then after he does this deed, he goes and he locks the door and he, he escapes. I mean, this is like something out of a movie, right? I think I saw James Bond do something like this one time. And then we get to verse 24. And in verse 24, it says, When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Now, again, this is a disgusting passage. You can imagine the smell that would have come out after this wounding took place. And they think he's just hanging out in there using the bathroom. Now, they couldn't just go in. You could be killed for him barging in on the king at a tender moment like this. So what do they do? They wait. They wait and they wait and they wait. They wait to the point that they're embarrassed. They finally go in. They see what's happened, but by then it's too late. The murderer... Uh, has already fled. So he escapes. He rallies the troops. Then they come in and wipe out the Moabites. And it says in verse 30 that the land had rest for 80 years. For 80 years. We get such a mixed bag with this guy, Ahud. Because on the one hand, yes, he does acknowledge God in a small way. But by and large, he's acting in a very self-reliant way. And then we get introduced to another guy. This guy by the name of Shamgar. And there in verse 31, first of all, the first two words, we see the link of Shamgar to the previous guy because it starts the verse after him. So the narrator, he's, in, he's intentionally connecting this guy to Ahud. And it says after him, so the writers intentionally link him in, uh, Shamgar, son of Anath. Now, Anath was actually a Canaanite name. This guy was by birth a Canaanite. But he had, God made allowance for foreigners to come in and become part of the people of Israel. 
So this guy who was a Canaanite did not come from a particular tribe, was not Israelite by birth. He comes in, what's he does? He, he, he kills 600 Philistines by himself. Just let that sink in. And then how did he do it? He did it with an ox goad. This is an ox goad. Now you say, well, Chad, that just kind of looks like a pointy stick. It was a pointy stick. That's all the guy needed. And he killed 600 Philistines with his pointy stick. This guy is being compared to the previous guy. Notice what he didn't have. He didn't have lies. He didn't have deceit. He didn't have a weapon that was specially made by him to a certain length with two edges. He didn't come in under false pretenses. He didn't lie saying he had a message from God. And yet look how completely effective Shamgar was. We have one verse. That's all we have. Compared to the 19 or so that we have for this guy Ahud. So this stark contrast is, is being made. Shamgar points out Ahud's folly. You see, God is blessing this man because he didn't use trickery, because he didn't use deceit. Rather, he's showing a God-dependent kind of integrity. A God-dependent kind of integrity. Now, integrity is an interesting word. The root word of it is integrated. It means you are an integrated person if you're practicing integrity. You're not saying you're one thing and then doing something else. You're not using double speak. That's what it means to have integrity. And, and for the Christian, it means our actions are depicting our faith. We're showing people what we believe by what we do and how we act. So what does that mean? God used the one who avoided the problem of self-sufficiency. And this is the kind of leader that we want to be. The leader that avoids this problem of self-sufficiency. So we need to lead righteously. We need to lead righteously, but how do we do that? I want to offer four applications to this. They all start with the letter P. That's my alliteration to this. So four applications. How do we lead righteously? First, we pray. First, we pray. pray prayer is the primary way that we rely on God. And I love something the leader Tom Rainier said. Uh, he said that uh, he specialized in church leadership. And he says that prayerlessness is idolatry of the self. Prayerlessness is idolatry of the of the self. When we are praying, we are saying that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to take on and do whatever we need to do. I, you know, I try to take at least 15 minutes every morning to lift up the day to God. And this morning it was longer because frankly, I woke up in a pretty bad place this morning. And I had to start out with thoughts of God, His holiness, His grace that I'm dependent on every single day. So first of all, we pray. We want to be praying all the time. Second, practice integrity. Practice integrity. This means that we don't compromise to the world's way of doing things. And I love what President Eisenhower said about integrity. He said, the supreme quality of leadership is unquestionable integrity. 
Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang, a football field, in an army, or in an office. This is why we don't fudge on resumes. This is why we don't fudge on statistics. This is why we're honest about our taxes. It's because we want to practice integrity. And then third, physical exercise. Physical exercise. You know, I heard a story one time about a circuit rider. Uh, he's the, the circuit riders were these traveling evangelists who rode on horses all over the place uh, in the early part of America, sharing the gospel with with whomever would listen. There was one particular circuit rider who rode hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of miles, speaking to all kinds of people, more so than anybody else had. And somebody came to him and then he said, how is it you were so capable of riding around so much, of speaking to so many people? And he looked at the guy and said, well, I took good care of my horse. You know, God gave us a body that we need to take care of. If we're to be about the work that God has given us to do, we need to be participating in physical exercise. Now, before you start shouting hypocrite, I have been playing tennis and racquetball. I, I, there's someone here this morning that can attest to the fact that I've been at the YMCA recently. Okay. It's important, and I know I need it. I had a counselor back in West Virginia. He was on staff at our church that, that said 30 minutes of exercise uh, elevating your heart rate will actually, it's the equivalent of taking two antidepressants. It's so important. And then finally, number four, we need to promote others. We need to promote others. Um, in whatever venue you are practicing leadership, it is so important that you are encouraging other people. If you had any idea how many people were right on the brink of quitting, who if they just received one word from their leader, it could be one of your kids, one of your employees, whomever it may be. It could help them go another hundred miles. William Wilberforce, a British man who was battling uh, slavery in Britain, had gotten to the point that he was just about ready to quit. He thought, I'm not going to be able to make any change here. I, I don't think I can do this. He was just about ready to quit. And then John Wesley uh, heard about his discouragement that he was just about done. So Wesley, it was six days before he died, wrote a letter to Wilberforce, and he said this. He said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might till even American slavery shall vanish away before it. Now, it took him 45 years from the time he got this for slavery ultimately to, be, ultimately to be abolished in Britain. But you know what? He kept at it. We need to be encouraging each other. We need to be promoting other people. So then in closing, um, I want to emphasize this need of integrity. And we can sum this all up. Lead righteously by praying, practicing integrity, getting physical exercise, and promoting others. That's the summary of what, what we've said here. And I want to emphasize this need of an integrity that has a dependence on God for the outcome. That's what we didn't see in this story in Judges. Whatever we think we're going to achieve by going around God is not going to work the way that we think it is. Please pray with me. Almighty God, 
We so need your strength and your wisdom to be uncompromising leaders who follow you. God, I, I pray for the people here. I pray for the young people who are trying to live out their Christian faith in elementary school and junior high and high school, Lord, and the leaders that we have, the Christian business leaders who have to practice integrity in front of a watching crowd and guide the, the people who are leading their families. I pray that, that we would all be examples that our children could look up to as we don't cut corners, as we pray, and as we encourage those people that are looking up to us. God, we ask it all. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you all so much for being here. You're dismissed.